So chapter, I mean, just to, to preface, the, the section just before this in chapter 3 had been about the wilderness generation had not entered God's rest, but in fact, many of them had died, uh, and that they were not able to enter, as verse 19 says, uh, because of their unbelief, not because they weren't good enough, uh, and that's, that's something that we need to mark very well, but because of their unbelief. And so we pick up Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has Somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray 
for his help. Almighty God, might you send your Holy Spirit to bless our time together as we reflect upon uh, your word. This, this passage about how uh, those who would not receive the message of the gospel failed to enter your rest even though they heard of it. And how we then need to uh, have that obedience of faith, that obedience which is faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, that we might have certainty of the rest before us. And help us to see how that rest which is guaranteed for all who trust in the Lord Jesus is given to us now in a foretaste in what we call the Lord's Day. And so help us learn more about and how to treasure up in our hearts this fourth commandment of yours. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts that we might love you more, that we might serve you better. And we ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. One interesting feature, or at least I think it's interesting, a uh, feature uh, of large-scale athletic uh, departments, organizations, is this thing called the practice field, right? Although having huge stadiums for playing main games, well-funded teams uh, have separate fields <laughs> devoted entirely to, to practice time. I've always found that odd that they would construct a, a facility apart from where they, they do the real thing, the real work of, of playing the game to have a spot just to kind of get used to playing the game. Why have a practice field? Well, um, I actually Googled that question <laughs> this week. And, and one company specializing in construction of sports facilities outlined why a team can benefit from a turf practice field, giving, giving four reasons. Increased traction, increased safety, simple maintenance, and durable construction. In other words, I think if we sort of pull out, if we kind of boil that down, a practice field is designed in a, in a special way to be easy to use, and to help you strengthen aspects of your skills for using them outside practice. As we work through the Ten Commandments, we come to the Fourth Commandment. Some of you are smiling because you already know where I'm going with this. Uh, we come to the Fourth Commandment. And Exodus 28-11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall, shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Now, with each commandment, uh, we've thought about how, how it binds us as God's image bearers because each commandment is grounded in God's own character somehow. Uh, the commandments teach us about God himself. It's not just, it is an instruction. It is, it is law. And it also teaches us about God himself. And, and that connection explains why we who should reflect God's goodness must always keep these commands. Why, why we cannot get away from our obligation to them. Now further, these commandments summarize, not exhaust, our moral responsibilities. Each commandment has implications about what they forbid and require that bind us as well. I think that will, um, I think that will become more obvious when we transition into what we've called the second table of the law, right? Commandments 5 to 10, which are encapsulate our duties towards our neighbor. The first four about our duties toward God. And the fourth commandment is about the Sabbath. Uh, in other words, it is about worship. It is about uh, devoted time for worship. And as we have thought about so frequently together, or at least I've talked about it, <laughs> uh, worship is formative. It shapes us. It does something to us under God's blessing. Right? It, it builds us. It conforms us to what he wants us to be. And so the time demanded of us in the Sabbath aims at our formation, aims at our betterment. In other words, it aims to bless us. In other words, in, in many ways, the Sabbath is the practice field constructed in a special way that ought to be easy to use and to help you strengthen aspects of your skills for using them outside practice. It forms us that we might be ready and equipped. So the main point is that the Sabbath points us to the blessing of God's presence. The Sabbath points us to the blessing of God's presence. And our three points tonight are worthy, worship, and work. And so first, let's think about worthy. Um, and we have those three, those three questions that always occupy us. Uh, what does the commandment teach us about God? How does it apply? And how does it point to Christ? And so, what does the fourth commandment teach us about God? And two things uh, show that, at least two things, show that this commandment is grounded in God's character. And, and first, and, and this one is more fundamental, the fourth commandment is, is a high point in the requirements of the law's first table, right? Commandments one to four, which are about our duties, directly speaking, toward God. The, now, let's think about it. There's, there's kind of a development here, which I just picked up on this week, and, I, and this is, at least has fascinated me. Um, the first commandment teaches us that we must worship only the true God. And the second teaches us that we must worship Him rightly 
And the third teaches that we must worshipfully invoke the true God. So there's kind of this development. And then the fourth commandment teaches us in a more specific way that, that we must devote time to worship God. And so it sort of grabs hold of those first three to say, um, well, by the way, those three also have to be put into application specifically, at least specifically, in this demand of devoted time to worship God. The fourth commandment is grounded, so to to summarize this, the fourth commandment is, is grounded in God's nature simply because... God deserves worship. I don't even feel like I have to argue that one. In fact, I'd be troubled if I did. (laughs) Uh, The fourth commandment is grounded in God's nature because he deserves our worship. It teaches us that the one true God is worthy of our devoted attention. Not just our general awareness and appreciation. He is worthy of our devoted attention. Now, and what does that raise, right? I think, I think sometimes we hear this, this idea that all of life is worship. Okay, um, certainly, certainly all of life is lived for God's glory. No question there. Absolutely. I suppose, I suppose we can also say that in a broad sense, in a broader sense, all of life is worship. Um, it is having its worth, I mean, to the, to the formation of words, right? It is having, as Christians, all of our life is having its worth shaped by living it before God. Okay, fine. Um, but, but I think a lot of people... Uh, appeal to that broad sense that, and, and claim that all of life is worship so that in practice they can avoid devoting specific time to worship God. Right? They, they claim that, well, I can just worship God while I'm water skiing or walking in the woods or working. This is worship all in the same way and equally so. Um, and without questioning motives for all of them, because <laughs> surely I don't think all of them mean to do this, but the knock-on, the knock-on effect of the claim that all of life is worship in the same way usually means, or usually ends up with the implication that I don't want to devote any focused time to God. I'm happy for God to be in the periphery of all the things I do, but I'm not actually going to just focus on the Lord and devote my time to adoring Him. In other words, often, often all of life is worship is a way to baptize never worshiping. And the fourth commandment reminds us that God deserves our time. God deserves worship and deserves us making the time to devote ourselves to it. A second, 
So we've thought, so right, the fourth commandment is grounded in God's character because he deserves worship first. Second, the fourth commandment is grounded in God's nature uh, by teaching us about his generosity. And I think this one is really key and perhaps easily overlooked. God is very much self-giving. And I mean, as we have noted in thinking about Genesis 1 in the mornings together, God did not have to make the universe, which means that all creation is excessive. It's all extra. And that fact, the fact that there is a universe at all and that any of us have life on its bare surface shows that God is generous. He went above and beyond what he ever had to do. And that's evident in the fact that we are here and have life and breath and can move. Now, we can, we can push further than that, though. I mean, I think there's, there's that. Uh, but on the one hand, uh, that God deserves worship itself shows God's generosity in the Sabbath command. This, and I think this is contrary to the way that a lot of people today, maybe not here, but a lot of people in our world and wider evangelicalism think uh, about how the Lord's Day, the command for the Lord's Day works. And it's contrary to the mindset I've just kind of taken on in, in that first aspect because God is, is worthy of infinite worship. There... When you think about who God is, well, there ought be no time limit on how long we would commit to worship Him. Uh, which, which means that as God commands us to devote just one day to the Lord, well, that is a, a small, minimal, generous ask. He gives us these six other days that we can accomplish whatever else we need to do. And, and, and there's a lot of objections to the Sabbath um, about keeping the Lord's Day in particular ways, I suppose. Um, why, why do we have to give the whole day to the Lord? Why can't it just be 90 minutes when I don't get chatty? up here. Why do, why do I have to give the whole day to the Lord? And in response, I want to ask, why has the infinitely worthy God required only one day? And the answer is because he's generous. And he's accommodating. Hebrews 4, 3 to 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken. This is, Hebrews always makes me feel better when I can't remember the references to passages I'm quoting. Uh, for he has somewhere spoken. <laughs> Of the seventh day 
in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. I mean, he, Hebrews appeals to the creation week to show that rest has since then been available for God's people. And we talk about the Lord's Day as a, as a foretaste, as the appetizer for everlasting rest because even since creation, God has blessed that Sabbath, blessed, blessed His day to offer greater blessings to His people. Right, Even for Adam, before he sinned, the Sabbath represented rest that, waited, that awaited once he completed the task that he had of multiplying and filling the earth. If he had done that successfully without sinning, he would have entered an even greater experience of communion with God, even greater than the one that he had of direct fellowship with the Lord in the garden. And the Sabbath has always been an offer of everlasting, supernatural communion with God. Hebrews 4, 9-10, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. We just thought about it this morning, didn't we? About how God has, did what he did in the creation week to set a pattern. And at the end of it, he entered rest. And by the way, the seventh day never ends. Because the rest that God offers us never ends. And that is waiting for us, for all who do believe. And, and to bring that back to our point... God has always, even since the beginning of the world, been generous to offer us ever more of himself. That we might always be able to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the loving fellowship that we can have with our creator God. We were made for communion with him. He offered us even deeper fellowship, out giving even his own amazing gifts. And the same prospect of deepest fellowship awaits before us too. God is worthy of Sabbath worship because of who he is and the goodness that he has always shown to his people. And that brings us to our second point, worship. Uh, how does the fourth commandment apply to our lives today? Um, first, I just want to say it does apply. <laughs> that, that, I think that's key. We should remember uh, our last few weeks in the morning reading Genesis 2, 1 to 3, that God consecrated a Sabbath day at creation. And the, the principle of devoting a day to God belongs to our very beginning. It's woven into how we are supposed to relate to the world and to the God who made the world. And, and so, when we think about that creation perspective, uh, we see that the command about the Sabbath, all the commands, uh, um, 
delivered at Sinai wasn't the first time God's people had been obligated to devote a day to worship and rest. Um, That had been true since the beginning of time. And, And the fact that there may have been periods when no one was keeping it does not mean they were not obligated to keep it. It means they were sinners. As is obvious from the fact that everyone since Adam, including Adam, has been a sinner. <laughs> Except Jesus. Uh, but we can, even, we can even gather that from the command itself. That, that this, is, this isn't coming out of nowhere at Sinai. In Exodus 20, verse 8, as um, has helpfully been pointed out by other authors, the command to, to remember the Sabbath suggests that it had already been around. It is hard to remember something of which you've never heard of. Of which you've never heard, right? Um, and we can add to that, that I mean, there, that's just on the face of it. To remember something, you had to know it. But second, you know, since Israel had observed the Sabbath in Exodus 16... Well, we know that in practice, it had already been around. So not only had they heard it, someone had heard it at least. Well, they were doing it. And Hebrews 4.9 brings home that the, sta- the Sabbath still abides by saying to the New Testament church, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I actually don't know how to make it more plain than that. But there are objections. Uh, some would would kind of chime in right now um, that since the Sabbath was obtaining rest and and this everlasting sort of rest, and since Jesus has procured that rest, he has ensured that rest for believers, we are no longer bound to keep this command. Um, In other words, to condense that, since Jesus fulfilled the fourth commandment, we don't have to keep it. Um, That's remarkably unpersuasive to me because Jesus fulfilled every commandment for us. Uh, And none of the rest of them in in the Ten Commandments do we we think that way. (laughs) Even with his fulfillment, we, we know, oh, I hope you know, that you are still bound not to murder. Um, we, we are bound to be faithful to our spouses, even though Jesus fulfilled that for us. We are bound to tell the truth, even though Jesus fulfilled that for us. To me, the objection seems like, seems like uh, another version of wanting not to have to devote time away from worldly distractions, which may well be good in their own place, to commit it to focused attention on the Lord. And now certainly in some ways, in some ways the Sabbath has has changed in light of Christ's fulfillment, but that doesn't mean it's gone away. Uh, and and we see, I mean when people appeal to freedom, I want to say absolutely. We are freed from various ceremonies and the wide, wider ceremonial obligations that applied to the rest of the week for Israel. We don't have to kill animals twice a day, which is a great relief. Um, 
in a number of respects. Uh, especially in my position, uh, I would not enjoy that part of, of the job. Right? Uh, and and the keeping track of all the days that you have to do something and, and where you are in the yearly calendar. We don't have to do that. And so certainly there is greater free. There is so much greater freedom. Our day, uh, additionally, our day of worship switched to the first day of the week, uh, which is why we talk about the Sabbath principle, right? Um, that the principle of the fourth commandment still binds us to set aside a day, even though that day has changed. And it's changed because, because of that fact that we work out of the rest provided in Christ rather than toward the rest at the end of our works. So uh, until Christ came, the Sabbath was at the end. And, and works were the condition to get to it. And especially in terms of that how it symboled the, symbolized the offer of everlasting rest. If you're going to obtain it on your own, you've got to earn that rest. And in the New Covenant, it switches because Jesus has earned that rest for us. And so we don't work toward our rest. We work out of the rest provided for us. The Sabbath principle of devoting one day to the Lord remains, but the day for observing that principle changed upon our Savior's resurrection. Now, every now and then I... I, I get nervous that you might think that I'm making things up. Uh, and so in this instance, I want to read a, a section of our confession to you um, to show I'm not making this up. So Westminster Confession 21.7 says, As it is the law of nature, right? So that's the grounded in creation part. As it is the law of nature that a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection was changed to the first day. In scripture, and in scripture, is called the Lord's day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So that's, I mean, that's where we get around a lot of the kind of, I think, what are menial debates about Saturday, Sunday kind of thing. Uh, the Lord's Day is Sunday when he rose from the grave, and that Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath. And everyone's big question is how do I keep the Sabbath? Uh, what, what, what may I do? What may I not do? Now, Westminster Shorter Catechism 60 and Heidelberg Catechism 103, which are both available in, uh, your, in the back of our new Psalter hymnal, take up at least part of this answer. Um, I'm not going to read those to you. Um, and here's the thing. I, I know... That as soon as I go really specific on this question, people will stop really listening. 
and, and just start processing whether they agree or disagree with me. Uh, and, and start asking, is he too strict? Maybe he's too lenient. And, and so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you some questions instead. Uh, and I, I really do want to leave this, that you would wrestle with it. And th- I, I, I'm not going to prescribe, I'm not going to throw at you the, here's how to do it. So, and I hope you will grapple with these, but I, I want you to grapple with them. And think about what this means. So, I mean, given that God deserves time devoted in his, to worship him, given that fact, how, how ought we to fill a day marked for such a purpose? Rather, rather than asking, what, what may I do, what may not I do? You know, what are, what are, you, what are the rules? Which, I mean, in some ways, this is a necessary question, I understand. But what if, our starting point was, what if we listed good things to do? And if you did that, with just a little thought, you filled your day. If you, if you line up, what are good things to do with a day for this purpose? You quickly run out of time in the day. Rather than, rather, what if we ask that, rather than ask, what do I have permission to do or what gets me in trouble? What if that was our starting point, at least? Now, I will suggest two principles. These are not specific. These are principles that I hope might guide you in thinking about that question. First, diligently attend the ordinary means of grace in the church is assembly. That one's not going to shock you coming from me. Uh, what does that mean? Be at worship. Come to church. Right? So, so that's a guiding, first guiding principle. Don't, don't let anything interfere with your ability to be at church. Right? In terms of what we, I mean, I get that we get sick and that kinds of thing, but I trust you understand. I mean, like, things we're using time to do. Don't let anything interfere with your ability to be with God's people. Second, which is more likely to get me in trouble than the first, um, I I think, but this is really worth considering. Be mindful that some decisions we might make could prevent, unnecessarily, could unnecessarily prevent other people from attending church. It's not just about whether you can be here. What if something you do prevents someone else from being able to be here? And so I'm not going to spell that out any further than to say... As much as we ought to keep the Lord's Day by being diligent at devoted worship, we should not be an obstacle to anyone else being freely able to come and worship. 
Worship is, after all, the key obligation in the Sabbath. And that brings us to our final point. Work. Work. How does the Sabbath commandment point to Christ? Western culture often strikingly writes off Sabbath observance as old world practices or legalistic. And, and they think that everyone was just so super stodgy when stores closed and people spent the day at, at church and with their family. Um, and, and okay, perhaps for the sake of argument, we could entertain that. But I wonder, I mean, to, to come back at that a little and, and, and at the assumptions built into that, as, as those practices have eroded, has the world gotten any better? Everybody thinks we were just so tight and legalistic. And I just wonder, well, as that supposed tightness has loosened, have we improved? Do, do people feel more freedom as the Lord's Day is no longer a weekly feature? Uh, or to be blunt, is the world filled with more anxiety, generally or diagnosably, uh, stress and strife than perhaps ever before? Now, perhaps in that regard, if we answer that question the way that I'm sort of implying, uh, perhaps the Lord knew better than we do about what might grant freedom. Perhaps he was wiser than our assumptions. And even closer to home, I, th I think we miss a great asset asset if we if we diminish the lord's day um, i mean for our personal benefit uh, more christians today as far as uh, i can tell uh, at least at least compared to a, a generation or two ago worry over assurance of the lord's favor i mean genuine believers are are increasingly stressed about whether the Lord approves of them, even as they believe in Jesus. And do you think that it is an accident that as the Christian practice of keeping the Lord's Day in a serious way has decreased, do you think it's an accident as that happened, that anxieties over assurance of Christ's love for us and about our place in the world have increased? I don't think it's an accident. To, to answer the question, I don't think it's an accident. I think there's a direct correlation between our, our decreased attention to, to this issue and our increased anxieties over assurance about our standing before the Lord. Now, I, I often talk to you about how worship 
trains us for the Christian life. Uh, it, it ingrains in us the, the patterns of praising God, confessing our sin, and believing the gospel. That's, that's why we, I mean, we put it on a banner. We placard it across our service that that's the structure. Praise the Lord, confess our sin, believe the gospel. Because we don't want anyone to miss it. That This is the pattern of, of the Christian life. And we compress that into worship so that those muscles of doing those exact things are strengthened for sending you back into the world. And so to put our concern another way, in connection to how worship does compress the patterns we need for all of life into a, into a concentrated dose, well, is it any wonder that if we cannot learn to set aside our activity, our, our works for one day, to rest entirely in Christ? Is it any wonder that we forget how to rest in Christ the rest of the days of our life? I think it's not. I think as we have set aside training to rest in Christ, we have increasingly forgotten how to rest in Christ. When God has offered us a full day of reprieve, if we cannot set aside our other affairs to to re-find our identity in Christ and re-center ourselves upon Him, of course, if that's what we do, if we cannot set aside our activity to do that in this one day, of course, We are wildly unable to find our identity in Him in all the other days when countless distractions pull our attention away from it. If we can't do it when it can be our full focus, of course we can't do it when other things compete for our attention. John Calvin lands the point. Thus it is fitting that we should have a particular day for our assembly in order that we might be confirmed in the doctrine of God and benefit from it every day. That is to say, for the rest of our life, that we might also be well trained to call upon his name and to make a confession of our faith. The fourth commandment points to Christ because what we do on the Lord's day brings us to Christ. The rest that was offered at creation if we completed our work is freely offered by grace because Jesus Christ has completed our work for us. He fulfilled the law And died to forgive our trespass. In him we have that guarantee of everlasting rest. And the fourth commandment reminds us of that everlasting rest 
from Hebrews 4. It invites us to join God as he has entered that rest, that we might enjoy it with him. The work of Christ frees us from work as a condition for entering that rest. Instead of demanding us to keep the law to earn that rest, it invites us to rest already in the finished work of Jesus. It gives us a foretaste of the everlasting banquet. And it is a practice field in this life for enjoying God's blessed presence in rest forever. When we will do the real thing for all time. Let's pray. Father God, how quickly we struggled to do the things that you have given us for our benefit. We believe lies so quickly, just like the serpent tempted Adam and Eve. God doesn't want you to eat that because you would enjoy it. How quickly they believed the devil that you're not giving us commands to benefit us. And how quickly we believe the same about the Lord's day. That God just wants to squish the fun that we can have on another day off. When in fact you have given us this, that we might be richly blessed. That we might practice experiencing that blessed communion with you. That we will do for real and forever in the age to come. Might you help us cherish up the practice season that we might be all the more hungry for when the real time will come, that unendingly we will enjoy your rest. And we will enjoy it because it is given to us as we believe in the Lord Jesus. Help what we have done today to train us to find ourselves at rest in Jesus that we might know some semblance of how to do that in whatever might come our way in the days ahead of us until we can be together again. We ask it in the precious name of Christ. Amen. People of God, would you stand to receive your benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and forevermore, and all God's people say, Amen. Wonderful to be with you today.